Blog Talk Radio. in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Monday, July the 17th. And as we like to do on Mondays, we'll be chatting with our friend uh, Bill Katz, the editor of Urgent Agenda. If you don't live in the Texas area, then I will tell you that it's 101 as I speak to you right now here in the afternoon. So we're in a bit of a heat wave. We don't have the problems that you have in New York, Bill. Welcome. So you have rain and we have a heat wave. So that's, uh, that's where we are, Bill. And we both have crime. That's, that's the thing that unifies this country today. It's yes. crime, 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 crime everywhere. I noticed you sent me an article uh, that the head of the, Long Island, the uh, Los Angeles uh, Police Union advises his members to leave Los Angeles and to go to a place where they're more respected for the work they isn't do. Isn't that amazing? And isn't it a remarkable thing? I've never seen that happen before. I mean, when a, when a, a union leader says, you know, leave, go, you're, right. you're not you're not wanted here. It's it's tragic because whose fault is this? Well, ultimately, it's the voters' fault. They vote in these kooks who engage in these policies like uh, like defunding the police. They vote in a mayor like Mayor Bass, who is now the mayor of of uh, Los Angeles, a longtime leftist, uh, a fan of Fidel Castro. I mean, when you do that. What 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 do you expect? What do you expect will happen to your city? And I'm afraid that uh, that the advice given by this union leader may spread to other cities, and they may take the that the police may take that advice. Well, I, you cannot blame them. I mean, if you're a police no. officer, you already have a very difficult job to begin with, and the least you can do is expect the political class to take care of you. But in in this particular case, you know, I was talking to a. Uh, a friend of mine who his son and my son uh, were were little league teammates uh, a while back and he's a, a police officer in the Dallas area and I asked him you know how is it going I hadn't seen him in a while and, and he said he's going to retire and and then he said you know I hate the fact that I arrest somebody on Monday and on Tuesday he's back in the streets and of he course, says that's, that's frustrating it, it destroys the morale of the force because you do your job and some judge now the good news is that we don't have as many of those judges in texas as as you do in other places to be honest we don't have the problem that other cities do Uh, austin is a bit of a problem because they have a crazy mayor who decided to go woke but we have a governor who won't put up with it and he's actually sending in reinforcements uh, to protect the people of Austin. So that's a good thing. But, yeah, I mean, I, I feel sorry for these police officers. I've always respected these men and women who put on the uniform. They protect us. And, again, the least they can expect is for the political class to take care of them, Bill. Absolutely. Well, the political class is today dominated by the far left. And on the far left, people really don't count. The only thing that counts is the ideology. They look at a result, uh, as we have seen in our big cities, which is catastrophic, and they don't, they don't care. They just don't care. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about, they say. We're talking about the ideology that we should not have a police out there who look threatening to people of a particular community. Well, that unfortunately is the price we pay when you have high crime. We know how to deal with high crime rates. We've dealt with high crime rates in New York very successfully during the administrations of Mayor Giuliani and Mayor Bloomberg. We know how it works. We know how it can work. But they just turn, the, turn their, their other cheek and, and say, well, we don't believe in mass incarceration. There wouldn't be mass incarceration if there weren't mass crimes. Uh, That's right. we, we don't put 
we don't put people in prison just for the heck of it. We put pe- people in prison usually after a very thorough process, and it works. It keeps the bad guys off the street and teaches them not to be bad guys again. It's not a perfect system. Nobody claims it is, but it's the best system we have. Uh, and we, we are in a situation now that is almost desperate in many of our large cities. Well, I mean, yes, that, that article uh, from L.A., where you have, I believe, the number one or number two uh, leader of the union telling uh, the members of the LAPD, I guess Los Angeles Police yes. Department, telling them to to look for a job somewhere else or to take their talent somewhere else. That that is really shocking. I never I never thought I would see that. But then again, there's a lot of things, Bill, that I never thought I would see, and I'm seeing them. And that, that uh, some it. of the things some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Now, there is one topic that you have a lot of experience or expertise in, and I want to pick your brain a little bit, because the movie actors, I guess, are on strike. I'm not exactly and, sure and, who is or what union or whatever the that. The, the, the actors and the writers, right? The actors and the writers. And I am, I am technically on strike. I'm a member of the Writers Guild. And oh, uh, we, right, are, so. we, are, uh, we are on I want to reveal that just uh, uh, yeah. Full disclosure. Well, so you're crossing um, the line today to talk to me. That's, I'm honored to hear that. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> there, there are areas that are areas that, that that are not covered by the writers' guild. No, I, oh, I, I would, okay. I would not, I would not, uh, I would not be talking to you if uh, if you were covered. But the, this is a different situation. But the writers are on strike, and the actors are on strike. And Barry Diller, who's a senior executive mm-hmm. in the industry, has said if this is not settled soon, the whole industry could collapse. Uh, and I think he may have been exaggerating, but maybe not. There have been so many failures in Hollywood in recent years because Hollywood went woke. It, it mm-hmm. lost con- contact with its audience. It, pr- it produces products that nobody wants to see, except a couple of people going to a cocktail party in Beverly Hills. Right. And, and they lose money and lose money. And the more money they lose, the higher salaries the, their executives seem to get. And this can't go on forever. But, but if, we, if, the, if the studios or big co- companies start to collapse, it will be a catastrophe for the industry, and that will spread. Hollywood is a very, very large industry in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it, if it goes down the drain, uh, a good part of the state will. This is, this is right. not a, a funny situation, and I don't no. see any way out of it because society is so far apart. Well, um, I was, uh, you know, thinking of all of this uh, from the standpoint of someone who pays to see a movie. I don't know anything about the industry. I heard Mr. Diller, uh, the person you're talking about, say something on television that COVID hurt the the, the industry, that streaming is hurting the industry. And that all may be true. I'm I'm not, I don't know enough about it. Uh, But I can only talk as a person who goes to movies. There just doesn't seem to be the same excitement. Remember that song by the Drifters, Saturday Night at the Movies? There just oh, doesn't sure. seem to be any excitement about going to a movie these days. I mean, it's like a lot of it is for whatever reason. It could be because we rather watch it at home. That's not the case, our case, because I, we always love going to the movies. But it, it just seems like too many movies these, these days. You walk out of the movie saying, wait a minute, why are they preaching to me? Why are they telling me that I'm a bad person. I mean, so you kind of, you say to yourself, why should I waste uh, $15, which is what they're costing now? They're not cheap either. And and you just say, I'm not going to go. And I think a lot of people, I don't know anybody, Bill, who gets excited about movies anymore. Absolutely. Well, this began, if one you know wants to be absolutely accurate, this began after the Second World War, which was not yesterday, when... Uh, the, you know, after the excitement of the war and the, and the victory, people went back to a Hollywood that may not have been completely prepared to entertain them. Uh, the, the message films began to come in, sending us a message that we were supposed to believe. Uh, but, but still, even then, even then, it was still Hollywood. And in the 40s and the 50s, Hollywood made some great movies, great audience movies, movies the, the audience wanted to see. Today... With the exception maybe of some very young people uh, who are stuck on, on, on their age group, we don't really have any great incentive to go to the movies. First of all, any good movie uh, from the past is usually available on television at a very, very small price. Second, uh, the, the movie theaters 
often are in areas that are not necessarily the safest. And third, there's not the usual draw of a great movie. Uh, it, it was a time in America when 90 million, at N- 90 million people went to the movies every week. And it was a time when the population of the country was only 130 million. I mean, movies dominated entertainment. It was really the only place you could go for visual entertainment. Uh, you could listen to the radio for other things, but if you wanted the, the picture, the color, uh, the, uh, the, the, the pizzazz, you had to go to the movies. That is no longer the case. Part of that was the challenge of television, which came along in the uh, 1950s. Uh, people realized they could watch a ball game and not pay a cent for it. They could see a terrific uh, drama and not pay a cent for it. And that was very difficult for, for Hollywood to accept. So Hollywood tried a number of things, but in the end, what they're trying now is so catastrophic. As you said, telling the audience how lousy they are. You're just bad people, and you must, you must sit here for three hours and let us tell you about how bad you are. I don't think there's a movie that, uh, that existed in the last year, a new movie, that I felt I had an absolute need to see. Right. No, I know what you mean. I mean, I remember in the 70s and the 80s some great movies that I remember like The Poseidon Adventure. I mean, that maybe that was maybe yes, not a great movie, but it was an entertaining movie. It and was uh, today, it's exciting. Yeah, you go in and you you know you get caught up in the movie and you you know you you enjoy it. I remember The Sting with Paul Newman and Robert Redford. I thought that was a great entertaining movie. Mm-hmm. But that's the key. I mean, for me, when I go see movies, I'm not really interested. I'm not an editor of a movie editor, or a, uh, I, I just want the entertainment. And I don't, I don't get a lot of that. I think if they made a movie about the Poseidon Adventure today, they would blame it on climate change. There'd be a whole segment well, that's on exactly the movie. Right. Yeah. There'd be a whole time, and there'd be a half of the movie would be explaining how this is happening because of climate change. And absolutely. You know, you get tired of that stuff. After a while, you go, okay, you've already told me 6,000 times. I mean, they made a new movie of Snow White. I guess, you know, the the old Disney classic, they have redone yes. that. And, again, it's like the, the, the woke stuff, just crazy. What's wrong with Snow White? I, I don't – I mean, I, I never – I was never crazy about the movie because, you know, boys, I guess, are not crazy about Snow White, but – uh, my sons were not crazy about Snow White, but I know my nieces were when they were growing yes, up. Absolutely. And I thought it was a great movie. But now they have to find some racial angle to it, Bill, which I don't get. Well, now that is that is wokeism, and it is infiltrated into many of the studios. Hollywood already was left wing, and uh, had a very large left wing base within the industry. But now it's ridiculous. I mean, to win an Oscar for best movie, you have to demonstrate that a certain percentage of each group that they designate is in the movie. Otherwise, they won't consider it. That is that is not the way any free society can operate. That's the way a totalitarian society operates. And it doesn't surprise me because many of these woke movements in the end are totalitarian. They lead us not toward freedom, but away from it. Right. No. And and so you think that that they're going to get this thing fixed? I don't know. There does not seem to be much serious negotiating going on, but you can't really tell that from the headlines because often that kind of thing goes on behind the the scenes. Uh, If it it goes on another three or four weeks, though, I think they may have to call in outside people to help with the negotiations. Uh, Again, I, I think that you, you have a Hollywood that is perfectly pleased with the status quo because the people at the top make so much money. You know, if you were, if you were the head of Warner right. Brothers and bringing in $30, 40000000 million a year, why would you want any change? Right. Well, that's what I heard. I mean, I heard a couple of actors being interviewed on the radio, and some of them were saying, you know, we, we cannot even afford to live. We cannot afford health insurance, or I guess we don't qualify for health insurance in some cases. So I do have sympathy for those people because they are talented, I'm sure, uh, talented actors. But I think the problem with the industry, I'm sure it's a combination of things. As these, these, I mean, it's always complex. But I think if they would just try to figure out what movies people want to watch, they may right. find themselves. You know, I, I was thinking that the the industry is a little bit like the, the car salesman, the used car salesman who doesn't have a very attractive lot of automobiles to sell. 
So he doesn't understand why people are not buying the cars. Well, they're not very attractive. You know, you don't That's have right. the best... Uh, the best uh, inventory of cars right now to sell, so you're not moving any cars. And I think that's kind of what the movie industry is in right now. They're just not making a lot of interesting movies, at least for me, okay? I I don't consider yes. myself an expert. As I say, all I want is entertainment. You, you, I, don't, you don't, I don't get it. You don't it. have to be an expert. You don't have to be an expert. You have to feel it. And the audience doesn't feel those movies. They're, they're not for them. This is not something that could be intellectualized, and that was another mistake. Hollywood started replacing talent with education. I remember the head of one talent agency, he put the word talent in quotes, bragging that half his interns came from Ivy League schools. And I recall saying to myself, what does this have to do with making a movie? But it was their prestige that counted. Uh, I mean, at one time, I think HBO had under consideration a proposal that to be an executive at HBO, you have to have at least a master's degree. Again, what does this have to do with making movies? They, they, they started to worship the university campus, and that is always catastrophic, catastrophic as we've seen in society. You, what you need in, in, in a movie industry that works is talent, talent, and talent. Talent that appeals to people, talent that is well used and talent that really represents the industry. You know, uh, Jack Warner used to say, he'd look up at the water tower, the Warner Brothers lot, and he said, my name is on that water tower. In other words, I'm responsible for anything that goes on here, and the American people know it, and I don't want to be blamed for anything bad. That attitude doesn't exist today. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So I I wish him well because they're people, and you wish people well, but they're in 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 a very difficult corner. Uh, the, the industry right now. Well, let me bring up a couple of topics, Bill, here that you touched on over at Urgent uh, Agenda, and one is, of course, troops to Ukraine and the story that we may be low on ammunition. We as a country may be low on ammunition. I find this scary that we're low on ammunition. I, To me, that's almost unthinkable, Bill. I mean, how can we get low on ammunition? Aren't we doing any more defense contracts or what? Well, I think Americans would be shocked to find out how much the industrial base of this country has eroded. I mean, in World War II, we were the arsenal of democracy, uh, and we were, we were helping uh, Britain, other countries. Uh, we, our war production was incredible. It is one of the major factors as to why we won the war. Now, I mean, there just may be a few assembly lines open here and there for, uh, to meet immediate needs, but I was reading statistics uh, just this morning, in fact, I put it up at Urgent Agenda, that it will take years to rebuild the uh, fighting strength of our military because we are running low on ammunition, and, and you don't just go to the store and buy it. This is the kind of ammunition that has to be made in special factories, and it will take years to replace what has already been lost. That is shocking for the most important country in the free world, but we've allowed it to happen. We've had administrations in power that just didn't care or didn't want you to know, and that is where we are. Uh, There is a great deal of worry going on that if we had to go to war tomorrow, if we were attacked tomorrow, we couldn't defend ourselves. And that is not something where you want – it's not some place you want to be. No. And how quickly – I mean, during World War II, we were able to basically turn industry overnight into a war machine. You know, I wonder if we could do that today. Uh, you know, with uh, just the, all the regulations and everything that goes into uh, producing anything. But, of course, people are tying the, the, you know, the problem with ammunition to the money or the ammunitions or, you know, the weapons we're giving Ukraine. And I don't know yes. if that's fair, but, you know, the timing of this couldn't have been worse. I mean, you're, you're giving ammunition to Ukraine, and then you're saying we're running low. I mean, that's not very good timing, Bill. No, and we are beginning to send uh, a, a certain kind of weapon to Ukraine that is, um, now I've forgotten the name offhand, but it is a very deadly weapon in which shells explode in multiples above a, an enemy unit. Uh, yeah, and the kill cluster, anybody right? They're called cluster, right? Cluster? Cluster, cluster bomb, that's the word. That's the word. Yeah. And this is, this, this is not, it has not been banned by most countries but it has been discouraged. We are sending those weapons to Ukraine in part 
because we're trying to preserve our own uh, stockpile of uh, 155 howitzer ammunition, which is a basic ammunition for the U.S. Army. Uh, that's what the our 155 uh, howitzer ca- uh, cannons. Uh, that's terrible. I mean, that we have to go to these terrible weapons because we don't have enough, uh, enough of the regular weapons. Uh, I don't, though, see in response to this announcement, and it was made by the president that we are running low on ammunition, I don't show, see any great concern in Washington. It really is very lackadaisical. There'll be a few people in the Republican Party who will express concern, but in the Democratic Party, uh, uh, they, don't, they don't even seem to care. And I think that we're getting digging us off a hole. I'm in favor of aid to Ukraine, but I think there's got to be some policy where that aid uh, is not hurting us by depleting our reserves. Well, but we're also, uh, aside from the ammunitions we're sending to Ukraine, Bill, you wrote an article about 3,000 soldiers that are going yes. to – now, I don't know if they're going directly to to the battle zone or whether they're doing support, but you uh, you reminded us that Urgent Agenda that this uh, – remember the the advisors, I guess, at one time that we, we, we sent to Vietnam? That's right. That's right. And, uh, and you know, sometimes okay. these advisors can – can find themselves in the middle of a shooting uh, war, and I guess they've got to defend themselves, Bill. Well, yes, and that is that is what is known as mission creep. You have a mission, and then it creeps gradually upward, and your mission at the beginning is to supply supplies, and then it begins to creep into supplying advisors, then it creeps into supply troops, and I think Americans are justly afraid that we may be getting into, the, getting into that situation with Ukraine. Uh, the situation in Ukraine is uh, is difficult. I mean, they're holding their own. They're, they're pretty much stalemated on the eastern side of Ukraine. Uh, they are not going to surrender to the Russians. Uh, I think they want to fight their way through to victory, but they're not going to do it without goods. And if we can't supply the goods because we can't replace the goods, then we have a real serious foreign policy dilemma. Yes, and and I am surprised too, frankly, just like you are, that this has not become a major issue in in Washington. That you don't have more people talking about the lack of ammunition. I mean, I have you know, in the time that I've been following politics, I don't remember. Maybe you do, Bill. Another time when we were low on ammunition, I cannot even imagine uh, a time like that. I mean, do you, other than World War II, where we were probably low on ammunition and supplies. Can you think of any other time? I just don't remember any, Bill. I I really can't. We were certainly low, not only on ammunition, but on everything else at the beginning of World War II. I mean, we even though we were preparing for it and we had an active arms policy, arms acquisition policy, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, we did not have enough ships, enough planes, enough tanks uh, to, to actually fight the war. There were army maneuvers held in Louisiana in 1942 after World War II got started, and the, the, uh, uh, they, they used cars and put the word tank on them uh, to simulate a tank, and they used broomsticks as rifles in training because they didn't have enough rifles to train with. That's how bad it was then, and we were in an active war against two major powers. So, yes, we've been here before, but I think the difference is the, the willpower of the United States does not seem to be that great. We, we just don't seem to be able to rally around the flag, as they used to say, and say this war in Ukraine is important to us. It's important to the future of our children. We cannot let aggression stand in the Western world. We just go about our business, ho-hum, and uh, hope for the best, and wonder how the, the size of the next check coming from the government. Right. No, I, I agree. I, I, I was absolutely uh, I was quite surprised, really, to to read about this ammunition shortage. Uh, it just, you know, one quick thing, Bill, before we take a break, uh, I guess the cocaine in the White House story has been uh, settled for the time being. I'm not sure if people are buying, though, the story. I mean, I personally look at it and I'm very concerned about the fact that powder can get into the White House. Uh, yes, any type who, of powder. Yeah, I mean, I don't care who the president is. This is not a political issue for me. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out how you can get powder into the White House, and we don't know. And now I understand that this actually went to a secured part of the White House. Was it like 
you know, where the tourists are walking by and maybe theoretically some tourists could drop a bag of cocaine, I guess. Um, but this is a little closer to the more sensitive part of the White House. And, you know, I, don't, I have no idea whose cocaine this is, but I would like to have a more intense investigation and more involvement on the part of the Biden administration. I mean, the Biden administration should be as upset about this as anybody else, Bill. Well, I think that they are probably frightened at the possibility that the person who left the cocaine is somebody they know very well, uh, and they don't want to be embarrassed, and they're, they're trying to hide the story as best they can. But uh, it is true that somebody got cocaine into the White House. Now, if they got cocaine into the White House, could they get some poison material into the White House? It appears that way. It appears that the security is nowhere near as tight as we thought it was. It's, it's actually a major story, but it's, it's going away because the woke press, the left-wing press, really doesn't right. want to tell it. And they, that's what, that is a danger, a danger of a compromised press. No, absolutely. No, I am, you know, I, to me it's pretty serious. If you can get a, a bag of, uh, you know, whatever in the White House, it could be anthrax, it could be, I mean, fentanyl, it could be a lot of things that could actually be very harmful. Do you remember right after 9-11, that we were literally shutting down federal buildings because somebody sent a little envelope of anthrax. Remember that? Oh, absolutely. They, absolutely. And, and so this is the kind of thing that, that, I mean, I have no idea who did it. I know everybody has a particular suspect in mind. And, and I think in all fairness to that person, I, I don't know if, if he's the one, but, but I, I don't like the idea of being told that we don't know who it is either. That's not very, that's not a very healthy response, Bill. No, it isn't. They just wanted it uh, swept under the rug, and they want the investigations to end. They have allies in the press who are, are parroting that line every night on television, uh, and uh, they are hoping, I think, that by election time, people will have forgotten about it. Well, they may. They may forget about it, but uh, it doesn't make you feel very good about the security of, uh, of the White House. Let's take no, a little break, Bill, and uh, we'll be right back with our friend Bill Cash. Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, as we like to do on Mondays. We're chatting with our friend uh, Bill Katz, the editor of Urgent Agenda. You know, Bill, um, this is a little bit of history. Forty-three years ago, President, well, at the time he was a candidate for president, Ronald Reagan, uh, accepted the GOP nomination. I remember watching that speech, and I've seen it a couple of times since on YouTube. That was a great speech, and I bring this up, Bill, not just because it happened 43 years ago today, because there are similarities between the country at that time and the country now. And I, I thought that Reagan back then in 1980, that speech was very uplifting, very patriotic, and it was full of possibilities that the country uh, could do. And, and I said to myself, every Republican running for president should watch that speech and check out his delivery and and what he said bill oh absolutely reagan was a great retail politician and he understood that america is fundamentally an optimistic society we don't want uh, presidential candidates to tell us uh, that we're dying and there's nothing we can do about it they want presidential candidates the american people who say we can do anything that we dream of and let's start uh i think that um uh, I think that the Republicans understand that today better than the Democrats do. I don't think the Democrats understand much of anything. But I think that what the American people are also saying to the political parties is, give us a real president. Don't give us a compromised president. Don't give us a, comp a president who was chosen on the basis of ethnicity, of what ethnic group they're from. Give us a real president. And I believe that they are making that feeling known 
in public opinion polls that show that the American people, by a substantial margin, don't want either Donald Trump nor uh, uh, Joe Biden to run again for president. And here they are not only running again, they are running ahead of everybody else uh, in their party. And I think right. the American people are, are very frustrated by this. I think you're right. I think you're right. A lot of people I talk to are saying exactly that. They want to turn the page. But right now, both uh, Mr. Trump and Mr. Biden seem to be locked in. You know, they're in in first place. You know, it's like the baseball team in first place with a 10-game lead. Doesn't mean they're not going to be defeated, but they they both have uh, big leads. Now, speaking of Mr. Biden, uh, there's a lot of concern about him in the Democrat Party. Part of it is what we watch on TV. Part of it is how he talks. Uh, And it's like, uh, you know, I'm beginning to feel more and more, Bill, that many Democrats really don't want him to run. But they're also, as you've mentioned in the past, uh, there's the Vice President Harris problem. And and they're in a, you know, the Democrats are in a terrible bind. And I guess all they can hope for at this point of the game is that a lot of people vote for the Democrat in, in 2024 because he's not Trump. That seems to me the only hope they have, Bill. I think that is the only hope they have. I mean, the Democratic Party positions on major issues are not popular. Uh, In fact, uh, Trump's positions on every one of those issues is much more accepted than the uh, Democratic Party uh, positions. They don't really have viable candidates. The Democrats have never groomed a bench uh, in politics to take over uh, generationally. Uh, they're still dealing with the older generation. Uh, uh, I think most Americans have never heard of many of the Democratic leaders who are on the rank just below. Uh, I think their only hope is that the Republican candidate is so repulsive that they will walk into the White House. And I think basically that's what happened in 2020. There was no wanting of Joe Biden. I didn't hear any great cheering for Joe Biden. They, the majority of the people made it clear they didn't want Trump. And that may happen again. It's, uh, you, you'd think in a country of 330 million people that the parties could come up with better candidates than what they have. I mean, if not Biden... In the Democratic Party, who? And you brought up the reality of Kamala Harris. She is standing in the way uh, because the African-American community will not let her be insulted by simply being thrown off the ticket. And yet she's a disaster to the ticket. Well, what do they do? I really don't know. Well, there's a lot of talk about the governor of California. and uh, But, I mean, how if you're the governor of California and you're running for president – Usually governors, their message is, I want to do for the country what I've done in my state. That's a lot of times that's their message, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. you know, like this is what DeSantis is basically saying, vote for me and look at Florida. And, and I'm sitting there saying, what's going to be his message? You know, vote for me. So and, you know, uh, look at what the head of the union said about the police officers. Look at the state of Los Angeles and San Francisco. Oh. Uh, I, I just saw some I, figures today, Bill, over at Powerline. I just saw some figures today about the exodus of people from California. It is you, you've got amounts of people, Bill, the equivalent of a, uh, I mean, the equivalent of a of, of a city that have moved out of California, Bill. Oh, absolutely, the, the, and they out of New York as well. By the way, these are the two largest out migration states in the country. Uh, both were by the Democratic Party. I mean, they, if Gavin Newsom believes he's going to be president, he, he believes that the American people are going to elect a man who is widely seen as the worst governor in America. Under his administration, California has gone downward dramatically, and yet he feels he can be elected. Well, maybe with the help of the woke press out there, maybe he can be. It's possible. But what the American people will be getting uh, is an engine that doesn't start. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's exactly what they're going to be getting. And and then, of course, uh, the other issue is what happens to Kamala Harris. I mean, the only way that Kamala Harris doesn't get it, Bill, she would have to officially drop out. She would have to yes. say, I'm not interested. And then that would You're open right. the way for for Newsom or whoever, whoever the, the other. I mean, Hillary Clinton may run for all I know. I mean, there I might be. Uh, yeah, that could happen. Yeah. 
I think it's a possibility. She's not yeah. she's not too old. Uh, she's not too old, and she's not any more obnoxious than she was in 2016. I think she's held the the obnoxious level to pretty much where it was. Uh, it's possible she could run. She could run as the elder stateswoman, and uh, <laughs> mother mother, right. mother Hillary, mother right. Hillary will take care of you. Absolutely. You know, it's very interesting. You, it's very interesting. That, uh, I, a couple of nights ago, I was doing some research about this country's entry into World War II. It was some uh, thing I was writing. And I remembered that on the night of Pearl Harbor, uh, the first member of the Roosevelt administration to speak to the public was not the president. People think it was. It was actually Mrs. Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt had a radio program. And that, uh, despite the attack on Pearl Harbor, she said, let's, let's keep it on the air tonight. And I will make a statement. And she was the first Roosevelt to talk to the country. And they have her dress on YouTube. People can go hunt it down. And when you listen to her, you realize that if we are going to have a female president, that is who it should sound like. Uh, her speech was just, it was so dignified and so all-embracing. She spoke to different groups in the country, the women, etc., but she spoke like a stateswoman, not calling people deplorables or, or shouting or screaming. And I think that, that if the parties would listen to that speech, whether you liked her, her politics or not, it's not the issue. Just the way she conducted herself, she knew this was a moment in history, and she had to act that part, and she did, and she did it beautifully. Right. Well, of course, the problem with uh, the Vice President Harris is uh, she's talking about reducing population. I'm not sure (laughs) that was a very smart thing to do. I mean, to tell your country, you know, as part of our climate change, we're going to reduce population. Uh, I mean, I don't know who writes these speeches for her or whether she just makes it up on the fly, but that was not very smart, Bill. No, it wasn't. And she, I don't know what happened to her. She's not a stupid person. She was the Attorney General of California and a U.S. Senator from California. And while she was not outstanding at either job, she was passable. Uh, but nobody ever thought she was this much of a kook. And uh, now, you know, it's, uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And her statements to the public are bizarre. And they are going to be run back on television uh, when the Republican Party uh, takes out its ads uh, against her. I think they're hoping they won't have to and that uh, the Republican t- candidate will soar ahead, but they may have to. She's an interesting person, and I sometimes I watch this last speech that she gave and then the remarks she made about Jesse Jackson, I guess, in the last two or three days, and just her reaction in public. I, maybe she's frustrated in the job, Bill. I mean, you know, I don't think she gets a lot of phone calls from the White House uh, you kind of get the feeling that she's distant from the White House. Now, that has happened oh, yes. before, as you know. There have been some presidents and vice presidents who didn't always call each other or, you know, even, I mean, I don't know how often, but uh, you get the feeling that Biden and Harris don't talk to each other a lot, Bill. I think that's true. Uh, we did have a situation with President Eisenhower, whose vice president was Richard Nixon, and Eisenhower was asked what contributions Nixon made to his administration, and it was then that he gave his famous statement, well, if you give me a week, I'll think of something. Uh, he, he was not warm toward Nixon. I don't think he had a very high regard for him. Uh, and that, yes, that's, I think that's the situation now. Uh, Kamala has been put in charge of different things. Uh, right. I, put, I mean, and you never hear of any news being made of any of those things coming to life. I mean, no matter what no. you put in, char- in charge of, it dies. You know, she's like she's like the, the administration's DDT. You know, right. just spray it and it kills anything in sight. No, and, and 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 the sad thing about it is that some of the things that she was put in charge of, like the border, for example, would have been great issues for her to build a presidential ambition. Because yeah. I mean, that is a major issue. What's happening on the border? Uh, I mean, we have a, a there's a fight about to break out between Mexico and the state of Texas. Because our governor has has put these uh, border, uh, it's like a little. There are things that float on the river, uh, and they're intended to keep people out. Now, people who swim that river, that's a very dangerous river. It to swim. sure is. 
I mean, that's the people who do that really risk uh, their lives. So the governor has put this in the middle of the river. Uh, it's like to block people from swimming over. And Mexico is suing uh, the the United States because it says they're saying that this is a violation of whatever treaty there that there was about over the river or whatever. I'm not familiar with the legal case, but you would think this would be a great opportunity for the vice president to not to get into a fight with Mexico, but to remind Mexico that you know you're not doing a good job of keeping these people from coming here, Mexico. Maybe right. you need to do something. So, but she doesn't seem to want to have a fight. On on the immigration issue, she doesn't seem to. She thinks that the the immigration is, issue is all about inside the United States. Doesn't seem to understand that that there's a foreign problem to it as well. The cartels, yes, the caravans. She doesn't seem to address any of that, Bill. No, well, she, I, you know, she did take a trip to Central America. Uh, I don't know if uh, she did anything down there. Maybe she just swam. Uh, but uh, she, does, she, she does go on foreign trips. She was uh, uh, in Europe recently, and you never get feedback about how people were impressed with her. Not, not one, not one comment, comment. I think the world has taken her temperature, so to speak, and they know that uh, that that she is just kind of a second or third rater. I hate to say that about any human being, and that's somebody who should not be one heartbeat away from the American presidency, and that's the Democrats' dilemma. That, right, that no, really exactly. Is the Democrats I think the Democrats would have been looking for President Biden to move on gracefully, and she's the only reason uh, yes. that they're not doing it. I, I really believe that. Now, another Democrat, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the campaign because uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, I cannot figure him out. I mean, I have to f- confess. Um, he does every once in a while he'll say something very sensible like about the border or about gun control but he keeps going off on these I don't know if they're conspiracy theories but I'm not sure how effective it is to be talking to people in a campaign about a vaccine I, I, I'm not I, there's something that doesn't that I don't know it's not clicking with me Bill I think he is a kook and I think that we should call him what he is uh, uh, he, like the broken clock, he's he's on he's accurate twice a day, but he has also said that the CIA killed President Kennedy, and that he believes that story. Now somebody should sit down with Bobby and tell him that the term CIA is a name painted on a door. If you could give me the names of people in the CIA who did this awful thing, I might listen to you. But don't give me just the name of the agency. He he buys these conspiracy theories, as you said, and they are not only unattractive, they make him come off as a crackpot and somebody who couldn't do the job as president, and I think both are true. Well, at this time, for him to be talking that way about the CIA, I, I just find that to be very irresponsible. Uh, for him to oh, be yes. making a statement like that about the CIA, and I would, like you say, if, if he came up with the name of somebody or at least a an alternative i mean he could say well look i know this and i know that and here are the facts but he speaks about it with such authority that he says i'm convinced of it well i think he owes the country an explanation if he wants to be a serious candidate for president bill i mean if he really I fully says, agree i mean if you're going to say that the cia killed the president of the united states i think you need to be a little bit more specific now Another candidate, Bill, this is Governor DeSantis, uh, his campaign seems to be stumbling a little bit. They're laying off some people. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's too early for him or maybe he got in too early or maybe the expectations were unrealistic. But he doesn't, he doesn't seem to be moving forward at all. I, I thought he would be doing a lot better, frankly, than he is right now, Bill. I thought so, too. But I think you have the... 900-pound gorilla in the room, and his name is Donald Trump. I think if Trump were not running, DeSantis would probably be doing much, much better in the race. Uh, He is a very attractive governor. He is a very successful governor. He has a real record to stand on. And at the beginning of the campaign, he had plenty of money. But the, the Republican Party, as it stands today, literally belongs to Donald Trump. And I think we're seeing that every day. Well, that's correct, and he seems to be – but 
it belongs to him, but it's still a 35 to 40 percent chunk of the party bill. I mean, this is oh, yes. why, this is the way it was in 2016, if you remember, that he won the nomination fair and square. But that's because he kept getting 30 percent here, 40 percent there, and that he would win, you know, winner take all delegates. And he got to the convention with all the delegates, but not exactly all the party. Uh, and and I, I fear the same thing could happen here, that there's still a lot of Republicans who who would like to see myself included would like to see a different direction. I'm not I'm not anti-Trump. I think he did, actually did a very good job as president. And, and when you look at it, when you stand back and you look at, it, at, the, at the job that he did, I thought he did a very good job. But I think it's time to move on. He's going to be almost 78 years old if he was elected. And I think it may be time for one of these successful governors to to run the country, Bill. I, I fully agree with you. I think I think most people are dreaming uh, that both both Biden and Trump will drop out in some way and that we will have an absolutely open nomination campaign. Uh, and that would I think that would give the American people an opportunity to see new faces, uh, to become familiar with new ideas and to get past this 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 block we're in in American politics. We seem to be standing still with no hope of going forward. I mean, you, you don't you don't look to uh, a Joe Biden to move forward. You look at Joe, uh, Joe Biden to go to sleep, uh, but not, not to go forward. And as far as Trump is concerned, I, I, I mean, I've had doubts about his candidacy. I recognize his strength. I also recognize his abilities. But he is such a divisive man. I'm not so sure that he could get, uh, govern effectively unless he had substantial majorities in both houses of Congress. Well, that's it. And if he were to win, I think it'd be a close election, which would then raises the question, you know, is he going to have the Senate and the House? I mean, he, uh, if he doesn't have I mean, the things that he wants to do, like investigate uh, the FBI further or whatever, he needs a Republican Senate. I think right now we're realizing how bad it is not to have a Republican Senate when you've got the FBI director going in front of the House. I think those investigations would look a lot different if we had a Republican Senate and a Republican House bill? Oh, absolutely. I, I, look, the, the difference of five votes in the Senate right now could change the course of the country. It really could. Uh, the Senate is very closely divided. I think the Democrats have a, uh, an edge of about three seats. I don't recall the exact figure. Well, it's 51-49 right now. The Democrats yeah, right now is 51-49 because of Pennsylvania. Yes. That's where we are and, right now, 51-40. The House is, I think, six seats. Yes, well, the, but the, yes, it's a much larger body. But I have to say that I think uh, that Kevin McCarthy has done a very good job of keeping he Republicans has. in line in the House. I think he, he's turning into an outstanding speaker. But the attention, especially once the summer is over and we get into the one year to the election walk, the attention will all be on the presidency. It's not right. It should be spread out. And the presidency is not thrilling the American people. And that's that's not a good position to be in. No, no. Pe- people are are angry out there, and a lot of it has to do with our politics. Uh, politics don't seem to be making a lot of sense these days. I I think it was Bill O'Reilly who published an article today saying that the politics is like the Twilight Zone. You know that great show, the Twilight oh, yeah, Zone, sure. where you would watch these things on on TV, and uh, that that you know didn't look. It didn't make a lot of sense, but you were still watching the the show. Well, Bill, you mentioned that Mrs. Roosevelt went to the nation the night of Pearl Harbor. I didn't know that. Um, and also the year of Pearl Harbor, Joe DiMaggio made it number 56. In fact, the, the streak ended today in Cleveland. And when you look back at that streak, not just the, the incredible thing that he did as a baseball player, but the year that he, he was doing that, the, this was his streak became like a distraction for the country. Uh, people would actually look at the sports sheets, and he was the one keeping the country from worrying about the war and what was going to happen. Bill, that's right. That's fifty-six game streak, and it has never been equaled. Uh, he, I, I, I only saw Joe DiMaggio play live once. Uh, a neighbor took me to a, a New York Yankee game. We had a seat behind third base. And out in center field was this dot. 
Yankee Stadium was that huge, and the new one is too. Uh, it looked like a dot out in the center field. But he, uh, he, he endured until the end, a truly great be- uh, baseball player. Yeah, and that streak was just amazing, that a human being could actually get a base hit 56 games in a row. I mean, yeah. it's it just from, uh, from, uh, from an accomplishment standpoint. I mean, the next closest to him is 44, and that's Pete Rose. In 1978, yes. so that just gives you an idea. I mean, there's a big difference between 44 and 56 in terms oh, yeah, of, sure. of games. But I, you know, I've read a great deal about the streak and about DiMaggio himself. How he he understood, you know, the book that I read and that great documentary that Ken Burns made about about Major League Baseball. It, he was aware of how important he was to the country, Bill, during that year, because he knew oh, the yes. country. People were talking about the war. And he knew that he was kind of like the distraction to all of that, Bill. And he just kept going, kept focused on it. And I, I really think he did a great job. If he, if he was an actor, he won the Academy, Bill. Oh, that, the Academy Award, absolutely. Uh, oh, he was a great actor. He was also very graceful. Uh, I, I think that uh, people don't remember how graceful he was when he ran. He was almost an artist. And, uh, in fact, uh, uh, there used to be a program on uh, uh, public television for young people, and uh, one uh, a chapter of, what the, of it was devoted to the gracefulness of athletes, and he was he was one of the most graceful of all. Right, and I don't remember, of course, uh, I wasn't around, but I don't remember how how effective he was with the media. But the reporters were different back then, also. So I, I don't know if he interacted a lot with the media. It was all print back then and i guess they had the newsreels but i mean he just i just admire him so much even though i never saw him play and he was of a different generation but i remember talking to my father about him and even though my father was down in cuba they used to follow the streak down there too and oh, sure. he, he he just tells me that dimaggio was just the the greatest, the greatest, and uh, you know, I'll take my dad's word for that—that that he was the greatest. Uh, I'm sure there've been others pretty good since or before, but there was something well, about DiMaggio that just stood out. Well, his successor was Mickey Mantle, who was a, a good player, quite a good player. Yes. Didn't have didn't have quite the pizzazz and style that that DiMaggio had. DiMaggio no. was a man alone, and uh, right. and of course he also married Marilyn Monroe, which was. Uh, Rather important to, for his name recognition around the country. <laughs> but I think as the story goes, she was the one who needed publicity, not him, right? When they got well, married. <laughs> in, a, in a way, he, he, he had retired. Right, and, right. Uh, he was, um, you know, and there was that exchange between them that he reported, actually. I don't know if it actually happened, or, but uh, that where she had come back from a trip to Korea where she entertained the troops. <laughs> And she said to Joe, Joe, you don't know what it's like to be cheered by 50,000 men. And he said, he said, yes, I do. And he realized she didn't know how important he was. That's right. And, of course, he was cheered by millions uh, yes. uh, for years. Um, he was unbelievable. Well, Bill, as always, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for the little stories you always tell us. And you've got a great week. Uh, keep, keep up with uh, Urgent Agenda, and we'll touch base again next week. I look forward to it, Sylvia. Okay, thank you very much. Our good friend uh, Bill Katz, the editor of Urgent Agenda. Lots of issues today to get into the campaign, the ammunition problem. I mean, just a lot of things that we got into with Bill. Have a great day, everybody. This is uh, Sylvia Canto in Dallas.